Hey, everyone. Uh, before we get started here, I just wanted to thank you for your amazing support of the hilarious world of depression. It has been so great. All the messages you've been sending us, the emails, everything. Thank you. On this program, you hear lighthearted conversations about mental health that don't make light of the disease. You've heard people, funny people, talk about the pain and ridiculousness of struggling with mental health, stories that reflect how so many of us feel but can't always articulate, stories that stick with you and help you feel less alone and fight the stigma in our society. It's your donations that make this show possible. We need your support. It shows that these stories really matter. To make your gift to the Hilarious World of Depression, click the donate button at hilariousworld.org. Contribute any amount today, any amount that you can that feels right for you. Hit the donate button, hilariousworld.org. Thanks. Is depression funny? Mm, yeah, sure. Sure, <laughs> it can be. Cartoon of man with dark cloud overhead. The guy goes in to see a doc, says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. My guest this week is someone who is funny all on her own, but somehow becomes more funny when you contrast her actual fun, easygoing personality with the sometimes intense, emotional, not at all funny music that she sometimes makes. I am Amy Mann, and uh, we are at a a facility of some some kind in downtown Los Angeles. We were at the Marketplace Studios in L.A. Amy Mann became famous in 1985 with the band Till Tuesday and the song Voices Carry. You know. Amy has since put out loads of music on her own, including nine acclaimed solo albums. The latest is called Mental Illness. She also composed and performed most of the music for the movie Magnolia. I know Amy a little, and I'm a big fan of her music. And given the show that I host, when she put out an album called Mental Illness, I wanted to find out what was up with that. Philly thinks, and when he thinks he can't feel anymore. Philly drinks, and when he drinks all the drunks at the floor. Philly sinks, and when he sinks you go down. You do, you both I, I often start with talking about people's families, but I kind of want to cut to the thing I'm most curious about, which is the, 
the title of the new album, <laughs> Mental Illness, because there isn't a song on there called Mental Illness. No. Uh, what What is that title about? Well, I really felt like there was a lot of songs about mental illness on, on there. It was sort of in a more... <laughs> More. Look, I don't mean to make light of it, but in a more mentally ill way than usual, uh, because I think, you know, there's um, there's kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, a continuum where you can have, you know, disturbed or issues or fucked up or can I curse? Yes. Okay. Uh, and then you start to get into like, oh, this is uh, this mentally ill territory. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not really sure what crosses that line, like how I perceive that line to be crossed, although we could probably figure it out today. It almost seems too like you're, I don't know if it's making fun of yourself, but you're kind of aware of the, oh, Amy Mann writes those really depressing songs. And so these songs are, there's a lot of sadness to them, but there's almost kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek quality at times too. A little bit, yeah. I mean, uh, there's there's definitely awareness of, I mean I think there's there's um, some wry moments and and black humor that probably only I can detect because you know I'm like why would anybody think I was, um, you know having any moments of levity within that, um, but it, but sometimes that those moments of levity to me are just when I when there's a description of something that is really accurate and it's really pathetic i you know i mean that makes me laugh you know it's that uh funny because it's true thing it it's funny because it's, it's resonant with you and your experiences yeah here's the thing about amy she's kind of known for writing and playing music about damaged people and their hearts that get ripped out it's emotionally raw but what's the real amy really like really Oh, John, I'm happy all the time. Are you? <laughs> Just listen to her records. You can tell. Um, I've I've been depressed. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had, I've had chunks of time where I've been really depressed. Um, I feel like, I feel for me, um, anxiety is more of a, of a, of a lifetime companion. Um, but depression, th those two go hand in hand. And I feel like those, uh, like uh, also there's a continuum for, for them. Depression has felt to me like a thing that comes and tries to clamp down on anxiety. So you feel terrible, but you can't get to it to process it. Um, and then, I don't know, like it ha maybe there's a quality of uh, I think anxiety makes you feel like there's an emergency and depression comes and says, you you better you better rest. So the depression is there to kind of dampen the anxiety. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, smother I, think, it. I, I think for me, that's the that's the that's the function. And and, you know, and also the, the sort of feeling of hopelessness, like it like the overwhelming feeling overwhelmed can turn into hopeless which then, you know, it always, like, I always get back to sort of a paralysis. Like, my my stuff goes to, God, you know, I wish I could go to mania, but my stuff goes to paralyzed and dissociated and, uh, you know, sitting in a chair for hours, just staring, going like, get out of the chair. I can't get out of the chair. Despite that history, Amy is actually doing really well these days, making great music, happily married for 20 years. She even found something that's working for her depression, 
and more about that in a bit. But for now, let's back up. I think as a kid, I was probably really depressed. Well, mostly. mostly. I think I was mostly depressed. Did you know that's what it was? No, I just thought, you know, I think the book on me and my family was like I was, uh, you know, slow and lazy and, you know, but I think I was depressed. Where did you grow up? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. Siblings? I had a blended family. Um, My father had uh, his second wife had two two boys who were more or less uh, my age, and I have an older brother who's two years older. And so we we all grew up together. That that lasted like seven or eight years, I think. And then um, and then we were. And then they got divorced, and my brother and I were were back with my father uh, for a while. And then uh, your mom and your dad were divorced? Yeah. And so my mother wasn't really in the picture. Um, she had two other kids uh, with her second husband, and um, but we didn't have any contact with them. So, so from... From when I was like three or four, she she was out of the picture. There's a lot of people who say, well, if depression happens, it's genetic. It was bound to happen regardless of your circumstances. But I talk to a lot of people who say, well, no, there was a divorce. And then that's – I can trace it all back to that. Where do you – how do you well, feel about well, that? Well, I wonder if it's epigenetic, right? Because I think – I mean, if I – you know, my me- memories of my mother, I mean, if I found out that she – was really depressed, I would go, not surprised at all, because my, my memories of her are as a, are a, of a person who was, who seemed depressed, you know, who seemed like not really involved and kind of switched off and not, um, you know. Engaged. Yeah, not, not engaged. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised to, uh, uh, to hear that, but I, I also think that, um, you know, like, other stuff doesn't help, you know. If you're if you're predisposed to that, I think if I had a very stable upbringing, um, but you know, if your parent is depressed, then you don't have a stable upbringing. I mean, you know, you you have a a parent who's not engaged, who's not going to, you know, who who will also try to self medicate in whatever ways they can do that, um, and that can take a lot of forms. And you know, I think for my mother, one of the ways was just to get out, you know, to get out. So, you know, so who knows? I mean, I do I do suspect that if my environment had been a little more stable and uh, if I had had one person that I could really uh, turn to and talk to, it would have made a huge difference. But, um, you know, when you don't have that, you just, uh, you know, as a kid, you just kind of shut down. But you didn't have that in your dad or your brother? My brother, you know, and my brother had problems of his own, and he was very antagonistic towards me, so he was not an ally. And my my father was just, he was, uh, he was a guy who was always pretty cheerful, but he didn't want to know, you know. He did not want to know. Mm. And I think he would turn, um, you know, I mean, as a kid, you kind of get those signals uh, uh, that someone does not... Um, you know, I remember times where I was sad and, you know, my father was, you know, would do that 
joking parent thing of like, I think I see a smile. And you're like, um, like I'm three years old and my mother left me like, you probably don't. (laughs) I'm probably not smiling. (laughs) But like you get the you get the message, you know, like don't bring that here. Right. That that's not okay to be like that. Yeah. An adult who's faced with a difficult situation has options, good and bad. You can get treatment. You can run away from your life, self-medicate, properly medicate. Kids don't get those options. They just have to be there. But there was a guitar, and Amy Mann picked it up. When did you first start writing songs? Uh, I, I mean, I think I wrote, like, a song when I was 14, you know, but I didn't really understand how to do it. I didn't understand um, chord progressions, so so I would try to write songs, but I, but but it was really hard to to lot like it was very unsatisfying, um, and I think that's because I I really, you know, I, I thought a chord progression was to just randomly choose some chords, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so that. That technique didn't um, never generated uh, chord progressions that were that were particularly pleasing, and I you know like I couldn't sort of hook into it, and um, you know but I mean I tr- I tried you know um, like when I was you know sixteen and sixteen seventeen, and then I went to um, Berkeley College College of Music and learned some really basic uh, music theory and and realized that there were certain chords that sounded better with other chords. And it was like, oh, now I get it. So so from then on, I tried to, uh, that was a lot easier because there was a structure that I could, I could turn to. And if something wasn't working, I could sort of look at the, you know, what is, what is this, what does music theory tell me? Like, what does the structure tell me? Um, and I've, you know, I feel like I've always been somebody that for whom a scaffolding is important. I am not a person who wants to look at a total blank page. I like to have an assignment. I like to have a, you know, I like to have a box within which to draw. What were those early songs that you wrote about lyrically? I, uh, well, I think that I was trying to be Dylan, which is just so embarrassing because a 16-year-old trying to be Dylan it's like, what is that? You know, like, what is what is your interpretation of that? And I remember writing a song about, like, I guess it was about homeless men. Like, I don't even know. Like, I don't even don't even think I knew had seen homeless men or like hobos. I get like, uh-huh. where I don't even know what I was talking about. <laughs> the like, classic sixteen-year-old girl yeah, theme of hobos. Yeah, that's like what. Who are these? Who are these old gray men? Like, what is like? Uh, I don't, you know, tramps. Like, I don't yeah. even know what I. I don't even know what I was thinking. If you had said, "Well, who are these people?" I would have gone like, you know, um, it's just like, uh, <laughs> well, you know, old gray men who are like, that's uh, uh, it's sad. It's, the world's hard. <laughs> have to run out of the room. Yeah, <laughs> look, look over there. Exactly. <laughs> Amy dropped out of Berkeley College of Music to start a noisy, rebellious punk band called the Young Snakes. Sounded like this. Not long after, she made a hard, sharp turn and started Till Tuesday. More melodic music, more thoughtful. Their song Voices Carry was a hit on the charts and a huge hit on MTV. How old were you when Voices Carry hit big? 
24, 25. What did that do to you as someone with anxiety and with depression, with kind of all this, to fairly quickly, as I recall, uh, get to a point where everybody's watching you on MTV and knowing that they're sitting there judging you, judging your hairstyle, judging your voice? Uh, it was, well, thank God, like pre-internet. I don't know how people deal with, I don't know how people deal with that. Um, uh, the thing I felt the weirdest about was uh, I became very recognizable and I had people following me home, you know, to my $400 a month crappy apartment. And I've just felt, I felt very unprotected. I mean, I felt very, it, it felt very risky. I, um, and I still suffer from this part of it, but, you know, people project an idea of what you should be onto you. And then you immediately realize you can only be disappointed by what you were going to get because um, I'm awkward. I, you're a stranger. I don't know how to talk to you. I don't have, I mean, over the years, like you'd sort of develop like a way of. A pattern. Yeah, of, of dealing with people. But. But I didn't, you know, but even that, like, I, you you feel, you know, I mean, I'm not great at talking to strangers. I mean, I, or people, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not that great at, at interacting with other human beings and talking to them. And, um, and the idea of disappointing them is very, very stressful. And you know that you can only disappoint them. Um, because... They're talking to the lady from the video. They're, they, they don't know yeah. who you are. They're talking to somebody from a dream, you know. And I, I remember there was a, a girl who had, I think, it was, I think it was somebody who had called, somebody called, got my phone number and called me and said, my daughter is a really big fan of yours. Please call her and wish her a happy birthday. And so, and you know, like they're calling your home. And so... I, I, I actually called her and I wished her happy birthday. And then she called me again and then she kept calling me. And then she ended up getting mad. She was mad. You know, like she got mad at me because I, I didn't, I couldn't like sustain this this friendship. <laughs> and I'm like, I can barely sustain my own actual friendships. Like, I don't know how to, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> so, so that is like, so the idea that you're going to disappoint people, like that is very hard for me and mm -hmm. it's extremely stressful. So yeah, I didn't care. That was, I don't know how people do. I really don't. I don't know. I think for some people they're like, oh, I can't get enough. Yeah. Any attention is good attention. Like, but for me, for me, attention, I think is, I do it most it feels mostly negative like i don't i think the attention i got in my family was you know mostly critical and so i don't like people looking at me because if someone is paying attention to you bad things are going to happen yeah 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 and and it's different on stage because you're that's like a shared that's more like a shared moment and you're also in control of it you know you're in control of the of the vibe you're sort of at a I don't know. It's like you're at a party, but you don't have to mingle with people. You know, you don't have to be feel that like um, claustrophobia of being in a crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're up on a little thing, and and you could say what you want, or you cannot say anything at all. And and you're sharing. It's a shared musical experience. You know, like I get to be inside the music, and they're inside the music, and and it's different. Like it does feel more shared. 
Um, but obviously, it's in a controlled environment. I mean, that's a, it's you know, it's totally controlled. That success and fame paved the way for a successful solo career. Alert listeners to this program know that no matter how much you tour, you can't outrun your mind. So how do you come down on the idea of, well, you know, she had it rough, but then she was able to be more creative and retreat into her music. And it's all great because she became this successful musician who people love. Um, well, ew, I hate that. I mean, I, you know... Look, other people had it much worse, but I, I you know, I, I wouldn't wish that kind of loneliness and confusion on anyone. And uh, and I don't think it works like that. Uh, you know, I mean, especially for me, um, being depressed, I can't, uh, I can't write when I'm depressed, you know. I can't, because for me, you know, being depressed, which, as I said, like, is usually preceded or bundled with anxiety that's all about self-protection like you put up walls and those walls those walls go for everything you know it's it's not like there's a secret door that you can that's creative creativity sneaks out of it's nothing sneaks out you're you're protected in your walled in and you're you know you're you're in your bunker and uh i you know i had have had terrible times with uh with writer's block because of that mm. Writer's block when the depression's acting up or the anxiety yeah, or both? De- yeah, depression and, and, and anxiety. And, um, you know, just kind of feeling, yeah, overwhelmed and like, what's what's the point and why, you know, why should I, I mean, even if you're, you know, writing songs or not, it's not like writing nonfiction exactly. I mean, it's it's fictionalized, but even that, it's personal. It's not necessarily like a diary entry, but it is personal. And, and um, I don't know, you have to feel a certain amount of just psychic safety mm-hmm. to do that. And if you don't, it, do, it doesn't happen. Writing songs that are often emotional and personal is hard already. Doing that while your mind is always bending your reality, that's even harder. At one point, Amy couldn't even write songs. Writer's block. I think I was really struggled with it for for a long time in a way that I thought would never end which is the you know the uh, the contours of the black hole look like they're permanent uh that's part of it and part of it I think also is that it's got so much self-loathing in it so for for me I think the 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 writing part was you know when my when the writer's block you know so-called writer's block was as at its worst I mean, this was this was kind of a specific thing, but um, you know, it was sort of record label struggles where you know the it's a very classic thing where the record label was you know we don't hear a single and you're like I'm giving you everything I got and uh, and then you know because the record label was like the only entity that would hear my music and and report back on it my impression of what, quote, the world felt about my music was that nobody liked it or wanted it. And so I started to adopt the the thinking that I felt from from them, which was I would write something, I would go, well, I under, I agree with them. I mean, this is, you know, like even if I said, even if I said like to myself, like even if I recognized that it was a good song, I'm like, good song but a good song is boring i mean like i could like even if i even if i really thought it was good i would find a way to 
to see it from, quote, their point of view that, well, who wants a good song? That's that's just merely good. Like, it's merely good. It's not exciting or interesting. So you were seeing the whole world's opinion of you channeled through what these people at this label were saying. Yeah. Who were viewing what you were doing in terms of the commercial interests that commercial. they had. And I, did, and I had no way to... I mean, I feel like now I have a lot more tools to, to um, you know, to, to deal with that because it's, of course, I'm like, it probably was just like one or two people, but they represented the the public or or people or an audience. And so I'd go like, well, why am I bothering? I mean, nobody wa- nobody cares about you. Nobody cares what you're doing. So what if it's good? Good is dull. You're you're dull and boring, and you have nothing to offer. And so, like, I mean, with that internal monologue, who can fucking write? Yeah. Who? Why should I write? What am I writing about? Why even bother? What am I writing about? And that and that was a point where I wrote a song called "Calling It Quits," which is like, I'm I'm fucking done. Amy Mann didn't call it quits. She called it, I guess, restarts. She made some changes. More about that in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. Stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Amy Mann, who was struggling with writer's block and a warped idea of her own worth when working on music with a record label. Ultimately, she decided she wasn't the problem. Her music wasn't the problem. Amy quit the label, got out of the contract, and has been putting out her music on her own label, Super Ego Records, ever since 2000's Bachelor No. 2 album. That's common in her business now, having her own label, but she was one of the first to do it, put out music the way she wanted it to sound, listen to herself. She took ownership of her mental health, too. I feel so incredibly fortunate to not to not struggle with that stuff. And I maybe it's because I'm handier. I certainly feel a lot of anxiety. I mean, I do, you know, that comes and goes. Uh, I'm a very triggery person. Um, but I do have tools to process it. 
what are the tools that you have used? Like 10 years ago or, or so, I started going to Al-Anon, which is, you know, to kind of 12, 12 steps, steps off. You know, technically, it's it's for people who are affected by other people's drinking or drug use. Um, and there, there was specifically somebody in my life who was um, a drug addict and they had relapsed and it was like, what do I do? You know, what do I do? How can I, how can I convince this person that, you know, that kind of thing. And, but I, but I found that it was really, um, the 12 step stuff was great for really just dealing with any kind of craziness, in, including your own. This isn't the first time I've heard the idea of Al-Anon helping non-addicts with depression. Dealing with addicts in a healthy way means understanding who you are, what power you have, what power you don't have, and how to function without being overwhelmed and crushed. The first thing I heard at a meeting that was really like, and I'm not really sure why, but that really struck me was, if it's not happening now, it's not happening. And I just was like, oh, right, because I did a lot of obsessing about the future and about the things that could suppose this happens and like, what if? Mm. And um, especially if you're dealing with, if, you know, if you have somebody you care about who's a drug addict and they're relapsing, you're like, suppose they die, you know? So it is like, it always feels really high stakes. But I mean, there's a lot of things in your life that can feel very high stakes, including suppose this person doesn't like me. I mean, I can't be alone in, 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 in this where, you know, in just interpersonal relationships and uh, friendships or professional relationships, if you feel like someone disapproves of you, uh, it it's really, um, it's very tough. It's very tough. And so I, but there was a lot of things I would do around, around that because, you know, those personal things really get to me, which is like, um, I just, uh, it's none of your business what people think of you. You know, other people are entitled to have the dignity of their own experience, uh, even if you think they're doing something wrong, you know, trying to deal with uh, and just like the basic, like, just let it go, you know, let it go. Yeah. Like what what uh, delineating what you can, you know, what you can control, and what you can't control. Something happens, you know, you're on stage, you make a mistake. Just let it go. I mean, you know, and I do have to tell myself, like, you know what? It's it's in the past. My my um, producer Paul Bryan has a has a Jack Handy thing he quotes to me, uh, which is something along the lines of, um, "If your if your keys ever ever fall into molten lava, let them go, man, because they're gone." <laughs> and so he'll go like, "Keys are in the lava." <laughs> they are gone. Yeah. I, I so wonder- you know, stuff like that just really helps. You know, keys are in the lava. I wonder, you're talking about a, a person close to you who is going through addiction, and the thing about that, um, among the things about that, is that it doesn't matter what you say to that person. No. It's completely irrelevant. No. And it can make you feel, especially if there's someone you love, like like you're not even a person because a person can have an effect and you're not having any kind of effect. Yeah. And I wonder if that informs a struggle with anxiety, depression, mental illness, where you're kind of, there's something going on in you that you do not have conscious, willful control over. Yeah. And I, w- I wonder if, if did is that one of the things that helped you about Al-Anon? I think, I think considering uh, what you do have control over and what you don't have control over, and you don't have control over other people, you don't have control over what they think of you 
uh, their own thought processes, their own responses to addiction or whatever whatever they're going through. I mean, there's literally nothing. There's literally nothing you have control over. And you also realize, like, people are, you know, we're 80 percent just... Uh, just reactions based on our own history. Mm -hmm. And then 20% might be actually, but, you know, what's really happening between two people. But 80% of that is you project your own own history onto other people. And you can't control that when other people do it. It's enraging and it's crazy-making, but you can't, you know. You can't do anything about it, really. So I just, like, just spending time... uh, recognizing what you what you actually are you know do have control over is is really helpful Al-Anon has helped Amy a lot it's empowered her given her agency over her mind in a really effective way and she got to that point after a pretty long journey it was probably like tw- late 20s when I started going to a therapist that that someone had had told me about and um you know, but not not a lot of people went to therapy. I mean, that was still like late 80s. Then not a lot of people went to therapy. You know, I think the thinking was, these are your own problems. You should be able to solve them. Mm. Which is like a very American, I can do it myself. You right. know, like I could do it all myself thing. And I was no stranger to that um, that kind of viewpoint because I think so. Stoicism was really like my only tool. Just hunker down and like get through it. Yeah. And if you needed something and you couldn't get it, just don't need it anymore. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, you walk into a store, you can't find it, and you're like, well, you know what? I don't need that thing anymore. <laughs> just uh, give up. I'm not asking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great tool. <laughs> Excellent tool. Excellent. But I found, you know, Advice. I just found like my personal relationships were just such disaster. You know, sort of disastrous. Uh, you know, it's like just couldn't figure it out. You know, I'd broken up with someone, I could not get over it, didn't know why, uh, you know, just didn't understand. You know, I just didn't understand what was happening to me, like why I was anxious all the time, like really anxious, you know, and it was un- it was out of control. Yeah, somebody told me about uh, a, th- a therapist, and so I, you know, went went to a therapist, and then, you know, they just pointed out, you know, and I always thought like my childhood stuff, you know, with my, my mother not... You know, my mother leaving, and and there was, you know, there was some other some other shenanigans. Uh, you know, and I just thought, well, that didn't affect me because I didn't feel like it affected me. I mean, like when I thought about it, I had no feeling about it, which I didn't realize was not a good sign. You know, <laughs> like that's not a good sign. You're supposed to have feelings. Yeah, because yeah. you have feelings about it. You just put them over here. Mm. Now they're coming out this other way. Yeah. And it was just very funny to have this therapist go like, oh, well, you know, this seems to happen to you a lot. You know, like this. This kind of setup seems to be, and you're like, oh, <laughs> there's a pattern going on here, you know. So, did the therapy help? Um, I think you know, therapy certainly helps to understand, but I think the thing that helped the most was Alnon because it is more, it is, it's more action. It's more of a. a you know, I mean, so, you know, whether it's sort of like writing things down or you process it in a more active way and in a way that understanding is is great. Uh, but but then you almost feel crazier when you keep doing the same crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I did take antidepressants for a while because I was having obsessive thoughts that got so 
so out of control that I was like, okay, literally, I'm not even having this thought. Like I would have a thought, I would have a thought and it would keep going and it would go, it would go around and go around and around. And I was, and, you know, I remember having this moment of like, I don't even care about this initial thought. Like, why are you still here? And it would just go round and round and round. So I, so I took um, Lexapro for about a year and a half, maybe, or maybe a couple of years. Um, and that really helped to just interrupt the pattern so I could, I could start working on stuff and like, you know, 12 steps off. It's interesting, like, you know, for some people, if they're a toll booth operator, if they're a dentist, uh, if there's a, a lot of these things, um, depression would probably present itself differently in terms of the work. But for you, it's a it's an occupational hazard. Yeah. You know, to to because it affects your livelihood. If you if you're shut down, you can't make new music, which is the thing that you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now it's you know now it's different. I mean, I I had a recent um, a recent thing that something happened that made me really really anxious. And there was a song that I had that I had to work on for it was for a project, and I was like, "There's no way this is ever." And I just sat down and started working, and and I I just I got I got into the song, and it was such a thr- it was such a thrill, and it's fun. Like it gave me it was it was such a weird moment, like all that you know that sort of cliche of like oh, songwriting must be therapeutic for you, and you're like, "Oh, go fuck off!" Like that's no, um, but it. But it it was, it's not therapy so much as, uh, a thing, a gift that you, that I was, that I'm able to, I mean, listen, writing songs for me is really fun. It's really fun. It's fun to put words to music and work on words and have them you know, figure out the puzzle of how to get things to rhyme and rephrasing things. If it doesn't like that's, it's really fun. So to find that, that I can have this, um, this thing that's in, that's involving, you know, that involves my whole brain and takes me out of that anxious moment. Um, even if it doesn't, it doesn't make it disappear. It doesn't make it go away. You know, it gives you respite though. It gives me respite. I don't, it was like such a, I was like, I'm so grateful that I have this. It's really incredible. But I feel like that's almost a recent that's a recent thing. I don't know like I've that's all my all my work has been to get to this point. We can't all write songs like Amy Mann does, but the idea of throwing yourself into something, something that takes up headspace and is fun, that's advice one hears a lot for people with depression. Here's another thing that you hear a lot. Find a hobby. Find something that isn't your career that you can just have fun with. Comedy, for instance. Many years ago, Amy and her husband, the musician Michael Penn, found that when they played concerts, their between-song banter was just horrible, stilted, and not funny. So finally, they got the idea to start working with comedians who would come up between the songs and be funny for them. And that eventually led to Amy doing some comedy acting herself. Here she is on the show Portlandia. Well, that's really nice to hear. Thanks. Sorry about the music industry. That's a drag. Yeah, that's well, the thing, worst, yeah, right? things are crazy. Huh? How about that? You know? I apologize for downloading you know, like your last four records, and I've burned all of them for friends. But that's awful. Well, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. That, uh, We're super being nerdy loser. So like, I should probably get back to work because I've got to do the floor. Did you do this already? I mean, some of this is not. It looks like dirt, but it's not. And it actually is dirt. It is dirt. 
Okay. I, yeah. You know, I mean, I can totally just do it again. Oh, Should the I kind just... of thing where you actually need to get up on the stove to uh -huh. get enough leverage. Right. Okay. And also, like, don't clean it too much, like, because we don't want to taste the cleaning supplies. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it's like acidic. So somewhere in between it, the full scrub. It is such a fine it's line. It's such a fine line. Like, and yeah. you're going to nail it. Also, it's I don't really care. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, have fun. Okay. Yeah. I'll keep it in mind. Thanks. Mm. Uh, Thank you. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you. Hey, Amy. Save me. Well, the funniest things to me are when people are not trying to make it funny. You know, uh, a straight reading is always so much funnier. And, um, yeah, so I... But, it, it, I mean, anytime I do any kind of video with a funny, a funny friend, I always, you know, I always say, tell me exactly what to do. <laughs> and I make... Because I'm here to make a thing, to be a part of a thing that is funny, and you tell me how to, how to make that happen. You know, I don't necessarily have great instincts about it. You know, so I try to just play it straight, be a, be a straight man, and uh, and not be like I'm hilarious. Right, right. No, it it works really well. For several years, Amy put together an annual Christmas variety show at Largo with music and comedy. She even went on tour with it, and she made videos to promote those shows. And in the grand tradition of depression infused comedy, the videos are mostly about how no one wants to be on her show. Here she tries to get Ben Stiller. I would love to. I would love to. It's just on when you want me to go to Well, the, the L.A. show is on the November 30th. November 30th. Let me see. Oh, no. You know what? I can't. Okay. I just realized All I have right. a thing. All right. Well. I'm sorry. You understand, though, right? I do. I do. Okay. Completely. Just, no, I know. Like, I can um, tell you're really busy. It's, well, well, it's everybody, totally, it's you know, totally everybody's, cool. everybody's got their life, and honestly... Like, I'd love to drop everything in my life and come and show up at your little... No, I get show. it. I get it. No, no, no. no. I, no love, I get it. By the way, I, I love kids. I love I totally children. Get it. It's not a children's show. It's not a children's show. It's you a show. Go... And listen, do I... Your, no, really, the seriously. Show, okay? Because... You know what song you should do? You should do that one... The one song you have about um, being really depressed. That one? I love that one. Amy even acted in one of the all-time comedy classic films, The Big Lebowski. She played a German terrorist who has her toe cut off. The Big Lebowski, how did that come about? It was just a weird accident because a friend of mine was one of the casting directors and said my name had come up, uh, you know, and she said, oh, well, I know her. Do you want me to see if she wants to read for this part? And, you know, like, of course, you say yes I mean, especially then, I was kind of in the mood of, I'm just going to say yes to, although I, actually this is kind of my philosophy in general, like now, to just say yes to stuff, even if it's even if it's stuff that you don't already know how to do or don't think you're good at, uh, what's the worst that can happen? They'll say no. I mean, you know, like I certainly don't, I have no like, oh, I need to be an actor. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm afraid of rejection. Like I'm not, I know I'll be rejected because I'm not, I can't act. So, but I, you know, I've, I've, if somebody wants me to audition for something, <laughs> I remember auditioning for th this thing and it was really hard. Like it was really, it was a very difficult emotional, like it was very heavy. And so I. For Big Lebowski or No, no, thing? this was a different thing. And, um. And I auditioned, you know, and I read with like an assistant, you know, director or casting person or something, and it was and it was on on film. And um, at the end, the this this the girl that I read with goes, "Yeah, this is a hard part." <laughs> like, yeah, I know, I know. Like, I know that was terrible. Like, I can't, you know. 
But, you know, yeah, I think just the experience of auditioning is so unpleasant, but, you know, it's, it's a good reason to try things sometimes. I'm almost seeing this arc from, like, being scared of a lot of things to not necessarily being brave, but just saying, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. And just doing it. Just doing it. Um, just doing it anyway. I mean, my, you know, of all the techniques to, you know, get through life, hiding and avoiding is just not a great one. And it's it's been my preferred one, but uh, I just don't want to... I just don't want to look back at my life and go, oh, I should have tried that, you know? Yeah. And also, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, somebody asks you to audition or they ask you to be a part of a video or something. And, um, I mean, my God, that's, that's how, that's lucky. Like, don't be a dick, you know, don't be a dick and go, <laughs> no, it's not perfect. It's not my perfect exact box that it's I out like of my to comfort stick. zone. Yeah. yeah. Like, just don't, just try it. As I talked with Amy Mann, I had two big thoughts. One is that she would be good at Dungeons and Dragons, any kind of role-playing game, really, because when Amy gets in a situation, mental illness, a recording contract, dealing with a loved one who's an addict, she sizes up what's going on, thinks about it, makes a decision, and proceeds with confidence. Thought number two was that I really wanted to watch that Voices Carry video again. So I did. Amy plays a young Amy Mann-like musician with a jerk boyfriend who is maybe controlling, possibly abusive. And Amy spends the video working at her goal, striding, literally sometimes, toward what she wants to do. And she hushes, hushes, she keeps it down now. Until the end, when she stands up in the audience at Carnegie Hall and belts her music out loud, silenced no longer. What do you know now about mental health that you wish you had known a long time ago? That uh, there are things that you can change. That you, that um, feelings aren't facts, but feelings follow thinking. And there, you can change, you can change the way you think. Uh, that it's possible to parse it out and and start if you start small you you can start tackling stuff uh but i but one of the things that's hardest to overcome is like people want a big solution they want to have a thing that they could do once and they and now and have it be done and um the humility of you know make your bed what can you do what what can you do what can you do right now go make your bed Clean your room up, you know, make answer one email. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our technical director this time around was Corey Schreppel. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller of the musical combo The Old 97s. More about Rhett is at his website, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting conversations about topics like these can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can go on there, take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D. That's THW of D. And we're on Facebook as well. Just go ahead and search us up. You'll find us there. You can send us an email at THWOD or THWOD at AmericanPublicMedia.org. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure to stop in at Apple Podcasts. Review us. Write a review. Give us a rating. It really helps us out. On the next episode, comedian Gary Gullman recalls being pushed into comedy by being pushed out of his job as an accountant. We were at, an, at a client's and I was entertaining and making a ruckus in the, in the um, special room that we had for accountants that we were working in. And, the, uh, and somebody said, Gary, you know, you're going to um, uh, disturb the clients. And I, and I said, um, uh, quote, what, what are they going to do, fire me? And uh, within 24 hours, I was called into HR, and they said, um, it says here that you said, what are they going to do, fire me? <laughs> and they said, uh, so we, we'd, like you to, um, we'd like you to leave. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.